Section 19 of Bits About Home Matters by Helen Hunt Jackson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 19. The Apostle of Beauty. He is not of the twelve any more than the golden rule is of the ten. A greater commandment I give unto you was said of that. Also it is called the new commandment. Yet it was really older than the rest and greater only because it included them all. There were those who kept it ages before Moses went up Sinai. Joseph, for instance, his ancestor, and the king's daughter by whose goodness he lived. So stands the apostle of beauty, greater than the twelve, newer and older, setting gospel over against law, having known law before its beginning, living triumphantly free and unconscious of penalty. He has had martyrdom and will have. His church is never established. The world does not follow him. Only of wisdom is he known and of her children who are children of light. He never speaks by their mouths who say shalt not. He knows that shalt not is illegitimate, puny, trying always to usurp the throne of the true king. Thou shalt. This is delight. This is good to see he says of a purity, of a fair thing. It needs not to speak of the impurity of the ugliness. Left unmentioned, unforbidden, who knows how soon they might die out of men's lives, perhaps even from the earth's surface. Men hedging gardens have for centuries set plants under that letter of law which killeth until the very word hedge has become a pain and an offence and all the while there have been standing in every wild country graceful walls of unhindered briar and berry to which the apostles of beauty have been silently pointing. By degrees gardeners have learned something. The best of them now call themselves landscape gardeners, and that is a concession, if it means, as I suppose it does, that they will try to copy nature's landscapes in their enclosures. I have seen also of late that on rich men's estates tangled growths of native bushes are being more let alone and hedges seem to have had some of the weights and harness taken off of them. This is but one little matter among millions with which the apostle of beauty has to do. But it serves for instance of the first requisite he demands which is freedom. Let use take care of itself. It will, he says. There is no beauty without freedom. Nothing is too high for him, nothing too low or small. To speak more truly in his eyes, there is no small, no low. From a philanthropy down to a gown, one Catholic necessity, one Catholic principle, gowns can be benefactions or injuries. Philanthropists can be well or ill-clad. He has a ministry of co-workers, men, women, and guileless little children. Many of them serve him without knowing him by name. Some who serve him best, who spread his creeds most widely, who teach them most eloquently, die without dreaming that they have been missionaries to Gentiles. Others there are who call him Lord, Lord, build temples to him and teach in them, who never know him. These are they who give their goods to the poor, their bodies to be burned, 
but are each day ungracious, unloving, hard, cruel to men and women about them. These are they also who make bad statues, bad pictures, invent frightful fashions of things to be worn, and make the houses and the rooms in which they live hideous with unsightly adornments. The centuries fight such, now with a Titian, a Michelangelo, now with a great philanthropist, who is also peaceable and easy to be entreated, now with a Florence Nightingale, knowing no sect, now with a little child by a roadside holding up a marigold in the sun, now with a sweet-faced old woman dying gracefully in some almshouse. Who has not heard voice from such apostles? Today my nearest, most eloquent apostle of beauty is a poor shoemaker who lives in the house where I lodge. How poor he must be I dare not even try to understand. He has six children, the oldest no more than thirteen. The third a deaf-mute, the baby puny and ill, sure, I think, and hope, to die soon. They live in two rooms on the ground floor. His shop is the right-hand corner of the front room. The rest is bedroom and sitting-room. Behind are the bedroom and kitchen. I have never seen so much as I might of their way of living for I stand before his window with more reverent fear of intruding by a look than I should have at the door of a king's chamber. A narrow rough ledge added to the window-sill is his bench. Behind this he sits from six in the morning till seven at night, bent over, sewing slowly and painfully on the coarsest shoes. His face looks old enough for sixty, but he cannot be so old. Yet he wears glasses and walks feebly. He has probably never had in any one day of his life enough to eat. But I do not know any man, and I know only one woman, who has such a look of radiant good cheer and content as has this poor shoemaker, Anton Grassel. In his window are coarse and wooden boxes, in which are growing the common mallows. They are just now in full bloom. Row upon row of gay striped purple and white bells, the window looks to the east and is never shut. When I go out to my breakfast, the sun is streaming in on the flowers and Anton's face. He looks up, smiles, bows low and says, Good day, good, my lady. Sometimes holding the mallow stalks back with one hand to see me more plainly. I feel as if the day and I have had benediction. It is always a better day because Anton has said it is good and I am a better woman for sight of his godly contentment. Almost every day he has beside the mallows in the boxes a white mug with flowers in it, nasturtiums, perhaps, or a few pinks. This he sets carefully in shade of the thickest mallows, and this I have often seen him hold down tenderly for the little ones to see and to smell. When I come home in the evenings between eight and nine o'clock, Anton is always sitting in front of the door, resting his head against the wall. This is his recreation, his one blessed hour of outdoor air and rest. He stands with his cap in his hand while I pass, and his face shines as if all the concentrated enjoyment of my walk in the woods had descended upon him in my first look. 
If I give him a bunch of ferns to add to his nasturtiums and pinks, he is so grateful and delighted that I have to go into the house quickly for fear I shall cry. Whenever I am coming back from a drive, I begin to think, long before I reach the house, how glad Anton will look when he sees the carriage stop. I am as sure as if I had omniscient sight into the depths of his good heart that he has distinct and unenvious joy in every pleasure that he sees other people taking. Never have I heard one angry or hasty word, one petulant or weary cry from the rooms in which this father and mother and six children are struggling to live. All day long the barefooted and ragged little ones play under my south windows and do not quarrel. I amuse myself by dropping grapes or plums on their heads and then watching them at their feast. Never have I seen them dispute or struggle in the division. Once I purposely threw a large bunch of grapes to the poor little mute and only a few plums to the others. I am sorry to say that voiceless Carl ate all his grapes to himself, but not a selfish or discontented look could I see on the faces of the others. They all smiled and beamed up at me like suns. It is Anton who creates and sustains this rare atmosphere. The wife is only a common and stupid woman. He is educating her, as he is the children. She is very thin and worn and hungry-looking but always smiles. Being Anton's wife, she could not do otherwise. Sometimes I see people passing the house who give a careless glance of contemptuous pity at Anton's window of mallows and nasturtiums. Then I remember that an apostle wrote, There are, it may be, so many kinds of voices in the world, and none of them without signification. Therefore, if I know not the meaning of the voice, I shall be unto him that speaketh a barbarian, and he that speaketh shall be a barbarian unto me. And I long to call after them as they go groping their way down the beautiful street. O oh, ye barbarians blind and deaf, how dare you think you can pity Anton? His soul would melt in compassion for you if he were able to comprehend that lives could be so poor as yours. He is the rich man, and you were poor. Eating only the husks on which you feed, he would starve to death. End of section 19